Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who's experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve captain with the rifles. In this episode, we learn how a commander and their second-in-command can prepare for operations. So aside from the fact that we had done all the mission-specific training, the mission-specific validation, we had got to know each other's ways and we'd, we'd had those frank conversations. This is what I expect. What do you expect? It's collaborative working. And why leaders must deal with psychological trauma responses on an individual basis. There's got to be an element of understanding that everybody's going to respond to what they've seen differently. And I think you take your cues on what somebody presents. It's giving people the time and understanding that each individual will have responded to things differently. Lieutenant Colonel Elizabeth Kagoda trained and qualified as an emergency nurse in the National Health Service. She commissioned into the Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps in 2005 and has worked at roles one to four across the medical support spectrum. That means that she has delivered everything from immediate life-saving measures at unit level in the field through to long-term care at military hospitals back in the UK. She served twice on Optelic in Iraq and three times on Opheric in Afghanistan in roles ranging from team leader to officer in charge of the emergency department. From Major, she was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in 2020 and has since focused on governance and assurance for both firm base and deploying unit personnel. She is currently SO1 Clinical Operations at 2nd Medical Brigade in Yorkshire. In this episode, we explore how we swap between the roles of leadership and followership depending on context and how leaders require trust and communication to step back and allow their teams to deliver a task. I started by asking Colonel Liz about the transition from civilian to military nursing. Looking back on your career and also your time as a civilian nurse, what are the main differences between military and civilian nursing? I think nursing is nursing. So ultimately, it is about the safety of the patient, making sure that practice is up to date. But I think within the military, sometimes we've done it in body armour, which even in the worst hospitals in London, they probably don't do that. And there's a deployment piece. But I think at the core of it, nursing is nursing, irrespective of where you do it. You just have different platforms in which you're going to deliver it. And the military and the civilian sector differ in that way. Your NHS hospitals will have your clean ICU that is sterile. And in the military, if we're out on deployment, we will have, yes, a clean and potentially sterile hospital, but there'll also be the sand. It's different, but similar, if that makes sense. And have you found that you've relished that challenge? Yeah, I guess there's something about sleeping on a camp cot and getting up early to go to a tent and do nursing, or the hard standing that was when we had enduring ops. But yeah, it has been a challenge and a great challenge at that. One of the things that it took me a while to get my head around is that when you join the Queen Alexandra Royal Army Nursing Corps, you may have the same professional qualification, 
but you can choose one of two streams. You can either become enlisted or you can commission, become a professionally qualified officer. Given that you have the same clinical qualifications as nurses, why would somebody go in the non-commissioned stream or the commissioned stream to become a professionally qualified officer? And what difference does that make in your job once you have gone through training? First of all, choice. It might be that people choose to go the OR route or choose to go the officer route. But there's also the element of being identified during the selection process. They see somebody who's got qualities that could be utilised within that leadership, understanding that second and third order effect. And I'm not saying that a non-commissioned won't have leadership within their sphere, but it's that bit where a nursing officer will help nurture, will develop, will enhance the skills of those that they lead, the people within their team. In your career, whether that's either in operations or outside of it, has there ever been a challenge for you in a leadership position where you've wanted to deliver the nursing clinical part of your career directly, but your responsibility of having command has meant you've had to step back? And what what has that tension been like? Oh, yeah. On deployment, my first deployment is OICED. So that's an officer in charge yeah, of, of the, emergency the emergency department. Yeah, because I'd always been hands on and I never for once imagined that I would never be hands on because you go through nursing to nurse. It was really challenging to step back and let the team get on with it because you've, you coordinate, you, you've got that overall command. And it was it was really difficult. And I remember one one shift where I felt that need to be in there that I just crouched low and held the patient's hand. It felt enough, and it was good for him at the time. But I think you you have to understand that the minute you're given that responsibility, you have to trust that your team can get on with it and you can oversee. You can't look over them. And it takes practice. It takes you understanding that you not being there will not stop them carrying on with the role. So, yeah, it's something that I had to learn quite quickly. So I guess there's a couple of things that you're thinking about there. First of all, there's the desire that you have that started you down this career path to directly look after people. And then there's also balancing that against your command position and also not micromanaging. Were there any leaders in your experience that really taught you that? There's been a few. I think Brigadier Archer is one of those. So he recruited me. So he was a major at the time. And then years later, he became my CEO for the Herrick deployment. When he picked us as his OICs for the department, whether it be the ward or ICU or the operating department, he picked us having done the assurance processes. And then he let us get on with it. And there was that trust that he had picked the right people to just execute what he needed to be done. And again, I, I'll probably keep going back to the fact that ultimately it is about the safety of the patient. And he had trust that we could do that. How did you learn either from him or through your own experience about when it is time to step in, where taking a more direct command role is useful or leading by example in those situations rather than just stepping back? Have there been situations where you've had to intervene more directly? Yeah, sometimes you look at somebody and you realise they're struggling. And the one thing about nurses, and this is not us being big-headed about being nurses. Some nurses have an incredible gut feeling. And you look at people and you think, okay, that person needs to move. And it's just how you then manage that. You can turn around and go, how about I take over that? How about you take a couple of minutes? 
come back in a few minutes and I'll cover you for this. Or get somebody else to go in and go, do you guys want to swap out? Because you can see that somebody is struggling. And it happens within trauma scenarios. We're not robots. Whatever we do, there's always going to be an element of emotion, an element of potential. I'll call it failure, but not getting it right. Can you talk me through an example of how you have worked with your second in command? Maybe it's someone who's got the same level of clinical experience as you and how that looks in action and how you balance roles and responsibilities in an operational environment. When we were on one of the Herrick deployments, we had a mass incident so that the number of casualties coming in was potentially going to be a little bit larger than what one would like and what one would expect. So my, my 2IC was a W02, very experienced, definitely militarily more experienced than I was. Clinically, potentially both of us on par in terms of experience and where we'd been in the emergency room. So working together with him and the consultants, because it is a team effort between the consultants, the doctors and the nurses, we decided that he would take the outside. So he would do the triaging and get people where they needed to go. And I would take the inside and manage the inside of the emergency room, which was eight bays, which we had surged to about, I think we'd surged to about 10 or 12. It was just that ability for us to work together and understand each other. He was my 2IC, but when it came to clinical delivery, we had pretty much the same skill set, so we could both manage. And we actually executed it quite well. Remember the CEO saying that we did it so well that we were able to turn the department around within four hours of the first patient coming in and getting all the rest through. So that was a really good way of collaborative working with my 2IC. What do you think was key to that relationship working so well? What kind of things did you do in the run-up to the deployment? How did you maintain that level of communication and trust so that you're able to work so well? So you took both my words, communication and trust. So aside from the fact that we had done all the mission-specific training, the mission-specific validation, we had got to know each other's ways. And we'd, we'd had those frank conversations. This is what I expect. What do you expect? It's collaborative working. And as I said, you took my words, being able to communicate and trust. This is the person that I have chosen in, in conjunction with the powers that be that is going to be my 2IC. I think there's also personality. I think personality is key. The one thing deployment does is it brings out qualities in people. It makes you closer or it makes you hate each other. Hate's a strong word, but it, it, it shows you what people are really like. And I think in his case, we didn't know each other that well, but we knew of each other. I think from the get-go, it was that initial, you look at somebody, they look at you and you go, actually, this is going to be fine. And you just get on with it. In other cases where maybe you haven't got on as well with people, what have you found have been the useful handles or behaviours or techniques that you can use to get through so that you deliver the work well, despite those challenging personal relationships? I think it's understanding why, if there's negativity, let's understand why. Sometimes it'll never happen because, let's face it, we're never going to get on with everybody. But we have to have that professionalism. And I think as long as you maintain professionalism, and I go back to the patient being at the end of it, and we can work together to keep that patient safe, then what does it really matter if you like each other? It helps. It really helps. But sometimes it's just not meant to be. 
And you've moved more into the governance and assurance space. Can you explain to me a bit about what that is and any specific leadership challenges that come up from that space? Because it's a space that I'm unfamiliar with. So governance and assurance. I mean, the minute the, the minute you mention those words, people yawn or there's a glazed look that comes on. But it, But I think sometimes we underestimate just how important it is. When I look at governance, it's about being accountable for continuous improvement, safeguarding its high standards. And then it's just looking at organizations to ensure that they're providing the care that they should provide. Are your soldiers trained? Are they trained effectively? When you're sending out somebody to, say, Malawi, and they're going to be on their own, are they trained to be out there on their own? Do they have reachback services? In a team, all of you may not have done the Burns course, but you have enough people that have done it that the team can run effectively with five out of eight that have done it. So it's making sure that we're maintaining the high standards and your chain of command, they're comfortable. I guess to an extent you're making sure they've thought through the implications of what they're doing. And there's an educational piece within there. I guess that's where the leadership part comes in. You're asking have they thought everything through and considered it so that if those events happen, they already have a plan in place? Yeah. And if it's a risk that you're taking, has it gone up the chain? Is the chain of command aware of the risk? Are they willing to take it? Is it a risk that could lead to loss of life or is it a risk that can be tolerated? How are you treating it? Governance isn't just black and white. I think it, it's it's got a lot of layers. And I know when people listen to us talking about it, they just, my two SO2s and I talk about governance pretty much daily. It's one of those elements that I know bore people to death, but it's a necessity. It's an absolute necessity for safety. When you look back through your leadership journey, have there been any particularly challenging moments, whether that's specific operational events or more longer term things? I think my biggest challenge has been the challenge of invisibility. And to put it into context, it's not that I'm Casper, the friendly ghost, and you can't see me. But it is that bit where people don't see you. I think if I had a penny for the number of times people have walked past me in uniform and ignored me, as in paying the right compliments, and I challenged it and somebody goes, I'm sorry, mom, I didn't see you there. And I think, what part of me didn't you see? I mean, I'm five foot eight, so not exactly invisible or difficult to see. But I think that invisibility challenges your inner worth. And I understand on a level, when you look at me, a woman of colour as a lieutenant colonel, there's not very many. In fact, there's very few, if we're going to put it that way. There's a percentage of people that don't expect a person of colour to have reached where I am. So you look at it and go, oh, I didn't expect that. And I think we all know that human nature if it's something that you think, oh, that's not going to be that, you'll walk past it. It's an unconscious bias, but it is what it is, and it, it's still out there. I mean, I, I can give you a couple of examples. I remember being at Collingwood, and I was a major then, and I was walking to the wardroom. This, this young Marine was walking towards me. I said, oh, hi, how you doing? And he took about four steps ahead and turned around and went to me, don't you salute. I just kind of looked at him and I went, why would I need to do that? And I literally just went, why would I need to do that? And then he went, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, mom. I didn't see you there. And I thought, actually, I said hello to you. And you did. But in his mind, he probably didn't expect that I could be somebody that he would need to salute. So 
that is one of the biggest challenges that I have faced. I say that, but everybody's got challenges within their leadership. This is just one. But has it stopped me being an effective leader? I don't think so. And I've, I've learned to challenge. I never used to challenge. It took me years because it becomes your problem. You become the problem. And I thought, no, actually, I'm not the problem. But I will educate people in my own way about that recognition of rank. Because I remember being at Sandhurst and being pulled up for not saluting. But we were still learning what the ranks were. And sometimes you got it wrong. You talked about how you've developed as a leader. So you've highlighted one of the challenges there. I guess developing the confidence in yourself to challenge other failings in basically integrity. And I guess having the moral courage to do that. In what other ways do you think your leadership has also developed over time? I think the importance of giving people time can't be underestimated. I, I mean, real time, and you actually give them your undivided attention. We're all busy. Everybody's busy. But I think giving people time gives them faith in your leadership. And that's one of the things that I've developed better, I think. I think you always have it as a nurse because you always sit and listen to your patient, but you're thinking, oh, I've got nine other patients that I need to do this for. But you have to give them that undivided attention because their problem is a problem now and they're coming to you with it. So learning to give the people that you're leading time so that you can then respond more directly to the challenges they're facing and maybe help solve those for them. Yeah. When you're in those very intense situations, when you're out on operations, when you're deployed, how do you as the team leader maintain the morale and energy levels and ability to deliver the task of the people within your team? Because it must be pretty relentless when you've got injured people coming across your ward all the time. What do you do and how do you do it? First and foremost, we all want to be there. If somebody said to me I didn't join to deploy, I've never actually had a soldier who hasn't been excited about deployment or officer. You join to get out there and do your job. Some days are exhausting, some days aren't, but you've become a team. The one thing about being on deployment is the fact that all you have is each other, the gym, the chow house. Everybody's in the same boat, so everybody gives. You'll be very hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't want to be there. It might be gruesome, but we have after-action reviews. We support each other. You go to the gym. You, believe it or not, we also, we used to watch, what's that show on TV that they, they buy the houses and fix them up on BBC? Oh, Homes Under the Hammer. Yeah, so we had a Homes Under the Hammer. Oh, did you see that house? Did you? And, and you find little things to keep you entertained. And whether it's the press-up challenge or whether it's the sit-up challenge or whatever it is within the department that you can do, or I remember one reservist nurse who just used to sew the meerkat toys and she would sew uniforms for them and she, she raised charity money for that. There's always something that we can do that takes your mind off some of the gruesome things that you can see. But ultimately, we have each other. How do you then deal with that after you come back from deployment? Because suddenly you lose that bubble and you've all been through some very difficult and challenging periods whilst you've been out on deployment. Good question. I mean, some people do it really well, some people don't. What are the common things for the people that do it well? In particular, what impact can leaders have on that? There's got to be an element of understanding that everybody's going to respond to what they've seen differently. And I think you take your cues on what somebody presents. Might be that someone needs a hug. I mean, 
that might just be what that person needs that day. Or it might be that they just need to come into your office and have a chat. And I go back to time. It's giving people the time and understanding that each individual will have responded to things differently. And as a leader, you take cues from them. I mean, there's the whole, you do the possum, you do, you do the trim, you do all those bits that are your textbook. Let's get our people back in. Possum's post-op stress management and trimmer's trauma response incident management. We, we do all that. That's your textbook. But there's also other ways. I've just recently worked with the most incredible padre. And I remember asking him who supports him. But he's also got a support network. I think my answer is you look at individuals and take your cues from them. We'll do the textbook thing, but then let's look at the person and see how we can support them based on what they need support with. Kinnelis, I'd love to speak to you much longer, particularly around these questions about caring for people afterwards, but I think you've covered it so thoroughly there. So we'd like to finish by asking three questions. First of all, how do you like to relax? I bake. You bake? Yes. You didn't bring any in for us today, Colonel Liz. I think the team benefit from that quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favourite thing to bake? Very simple, actually. I do a really, really mean carrot and zucchini muffin. Sounds amazing. It is. (laughs) Okay, we'll have to get you in for another interview. What books, movies, podcasts or experiences have you taken leadership lessons from that you like to share with other people? I watched a documentary on the First Ladies in the US. There was Michelle Obama, there was Hillary Clinton, Betsy Johnson, Jackie Kennedy, Nancy Reagan, and a couple of others. And it was just watching them be leaders and followers at the same time. So being a first lady is not an easy job. And, and we, we kind of know that. But when you look at what they achieved in their own right, it is something that I've recommended to a lot of friends. And I've gone back and watched because I was fascinated by Michelle Obama, of course, and Jackie Kennedy and just her stoicism and and when her husband was shot. You look at the strength that they had as first ladies and it, it can translate into any woman's world, irrespective of your station in life. Sounds like a documentary I should watch. Highly recommend. And if you could go back to speak to Lieutenant Kagoda starting at Sandhurst, what would be your advice based on what you've learned in your move up to lieutenant colonel? I think firstly, I'd tell her that it's possible because I have to say that I never expected to be here. I didn't, I genuinely never expected to get to where I am, even though I knew I worked hard. It was a dream, but it wasn't one that I thought, okay, it'll happen. It just seemed like a really long way away. But I think the first thing I'd tell myself is it can happen but you have to work for it. And I have worked for it. But you have to take the smooth with the not so smooth. You give as much as you can. And I always say that as long as everything you give comes from a good place and there's no malice intended, you're not always going to get it right. Then you can pretty much sleep at night. That's a great insight. Colonel Elizabeth Kagoda, thank you very much. Thank you. There's some really strong things that I took away from speaking to Colonel Liz. Selfless commitment seems to be an inherent part of people working in nursing, but also going from that to thinking about managing a team of people delivering 
in high intensity situations where you have the clinical capability to want to do it yourself. So having that professionalism to step back and trust in your team is absolutely vital. And I think it's very easy to want to micromanage those situations. So that professionalism and trust in your team. Also, she spoke about the importance of trust and communication with her second in command whilst out on operations on Herrick and having that relationship built up in advance through training and stress testing so that when operations happen and you're in an intense situation, you understand how each other's going to respond. But also the empathy and understanding of your team. She talked about the time in the post-operational space when you've had stressful experiences. Understanding that people are individuals, each of them requires a different way of being responded to and having that insight into your teams to know how to respond to each person. I also appreciated the nuanced way in which Colonel Liz spoke about invisibility and the impact of unconscious biases on individuals and on the organisation. And it made me reflect on how important it is to constantly interrogate my own unconscious biases and how they're acting into the world. This was an episode of The Human Advantage from the Centre for Army Leadership. It was produced and presented by Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the UK Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.